All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Like Brandon said, uh, we're glad you're here. <laughs> I'm kind of tempted to say, anybody not enjoying the sermon series, clap. But don't do it. I'm very shallow and insecure, and that would crush me, and I'd just have to run to Home Depot and start planting flowers or something. Um, but we're glad that you guys are <clears throat> here with us this morning. A couple of quick housekeeping things. One thing we try really, really hard at Calvary, and we really mean it, um, it's the great privilege of those who regularly attend a church or are uh, members of a church to, like Brandon said, then worship God by stewarding the things God's given to them to support God's work in the church. We, we really believe it's, we don't want to pressure visitors, uh, you know, or checking out church or even non-Christians to give. That's not, um, man, that, that's not a burden, responsibility or opportunity we want to put on you. If we'd love for you to be part of the church and do that. But, and so we don't talk about money a whole lot when we, there are different times and there's ways we communicate regularly to the people who regularly come here through letters and updates. And then there are moments when we just want to be transparent about our finances. And so we share that with you. Many times those moments are when uh, we have opportunities with our finances and we share that with different people. But man, I just want to start by just celebrating something as a church that, uh, you know, we have a monthly kind of amount that we want to receive in giving. We're a little bit below that, but here's just some exciting, exciting news that if you take out the year 2017, that we've had the best January and February in giving since 2012. Um, so you take out 2017 <clears throat> since 2012, uh, God has just blessed us and a bunch of you have partnered with us in worship and we're grateful for that and we want to celebrate that. That is something for which we should thank God and we should be grateful for. Um, and that's something we'd love to invite and ask you to keep going because we're really, really excited about the opportunities we have to continue to expand ministry and to, as, as more of you are coming and as we're trying to figure out the folks online, we want to serve them really well with, with some digital campus thoughts. And as we try to press in all that, it's just a great opportunity for us to serve one another. And the biggest way we can serve each other in a church is we want to make sure we have the staff to support you and encourage you and to drive some ministries. And so I am unabashedly... <clears throat> Uh, eager to help bring some staff onto our team because we're a, a person or two down. And so just grateful that God is showing some positive trends and are excited about what he's doing. I just want to share that with you, some great news about what God's doing. And then um, I want to tell you a little bit about my kitchen because here's why. There's a point to this. Maybe there's not. We'll all figure that out together, right? In 2014, I moved into my house. Uh, my house had a very, very dated kitchen. And so we do what many homeowners do. We're like, man, this kitchen is so outdated. We need to smash it all and start over. The humbling thing is whenever I move from my house, some couple's going to move into my house and be like, this kitchen is so 2014. Like we need to smash it and start all over. So we totally broke down, demoed the whole thing. And then as part of rebuilding that as part of putting that thing back together. You know what? You know what was involved in that process? There were actually a, a several bunch of you that were friends of mine from the past when I lived here. We just started connecting the church. And so a bunch of guys and some ladies came over with some tools and people, you helped rebuild my kitchen. I wouldn't have been able to rebuild the kitchen without people using their time and their gifts and their abilities to do that. What does that have to do with the church? This is what it has to do with the church. In many ways, uh, we're rebuilding our church. And we're rebuilding our church, not because there's been any moral failure or massive church split. We're rebuilding our church because for almost a year, there was this extended period of time just when we were getting all sorts of awesome momentum where we had to shut everything down. And so there's some people who are home who don't feel safe coming back. There's you back. But, but we're kind of at the grassroots 
just rebuilding. And you know what we need to help rebuild? We need the same thing that I needed in my kitchen. We need people. And here's the deal. We're thrilled for the people online and excited about the way online stuff is continuing to trend upward. Uh, but, but for whatever reason, you <clears throat> are the ones in the building. You... Now watch, nobody's going to be here next week. You're all going to be online. You are the ones who feel comfortable coming to the building. And so you know what we need? We need you to help us serve other people who feel comfortable coming into the building. And the biggest, one big opportunity we have right now is for greeters. We, we do not want anybody, whether you come to Calvary for 42 years or whether you've been in the door for 42 seconds, we do not want anybody to walk through that door without feeling they have a connection point and a smiling face and somebody who can help them either hold their kids' car seats or do whatever. And so we wanna rebuild our greeter team, our, our welcome team, and we want to do that quick, and we want to have both services fully staffed with people who like people who can help us rebuild this thing. And so you're in the building, and you're in the blue chairs. And so we are inviting you to also partner with us in that. And so here's the deal. There's an easy way. The QR code is there, and it's awesome. But some of you are like, oh, I hurt my back weeding yesterday. I would, Peter, I would be a greeter, but I have to, like, bend over and do the QR code. I'm going to save your back because you can text Right here, 7741, you text the word greet, and then if you just, this does not mean you're going to greet until the trumpets of Jesus blow when you go to heaven, okay? This just means that we'll reach out to you and give you more information about what's involved if you want to learn more. So if you're interested in being part of helping us uh, rebuild and greet and make people feel welcome when they come here, then we'd love for you to jump on that journey. So you can use the QR code. You can text to this number, greet. There's a display, a monitor out in the lobby that I'll be lingering around uh, that you can also zip on the way out to, to put you there. So just wanted to share some great news about what God's doing and just, man, hopefully look forward to him continuing that trend of your, your stewardship and generosity and then invite some of you to partner with us as we, we're planting a church, uh, which is exciting. And I know that it feels weird because this church has been around for 130 whatever years, but uh, we're, we're coming out of COVID strong with what God wants and we want to really love our community and love you well. And so we're excited about what that looks like. So I have taken way too long in announcements, which means I guess my sermon needs to be shorter. I'm not sure if it will be, so be warned. But we're going to jump into that now. Um, <clears throat> I will pray and then we'll get into what God has for us in the text this morning. Um, Father, we're thankful uh, for the way that you work. We're grateful for the way that you, you could just provide for our church financially through all sorts of different seasons, Father. You have been so faithful, and we absolutely believe and know that everything is yours, and we know that with confidence. And so thank you for opening up your hand to uh, help us, and we continue to look forward to that. Thank you for all the people who have faithfully served this church throughout COVID. And God, it's a privilege to be able to serve one another and serve other people in the body. And I pray you will stir some people in this room to be willing to jump out and, and maybe make a, a difference in a Sunday morning in somebody else's life who walks into the door of a church for their hundredth time or for their very first time. And most importantly, Father, we want to learn about you through your word and through what you have for us this morning. And so as we open up the text, Father, will you work? Will you speak? Will you help us to see you? And will you draw us deeper um, to yourself? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here's the deal. Um, my wife has a cousin. I guess it's my cousin-in-law. His name is Wells. Wells, back in the day, many years ago, my kids were younger, little elementary tykes and tykettes running around. He used to work for ESPN. ESPN is affiliated with Disney. And so one day we're at some, we don't see him a whole lot. He's out in Seattle now. 
And one day we were at some like uh, a holiday or vacation or something. We saw Wells and we're talking. He's like, oh, well, you know, I get since I work for ESPN, I get all these free Disney tickets. They're like all sorts of multi-park deal. I'll tell you what, I'll give you my free tickets and you can take the kids to Disney. And I thought to myself, huh, that'd be nice. But I didn't really, I'm thinking like, oh, that's pleasantries you say, right? You don't. Then a few months later in our email, An email from Wells comes with those Disney tickets attached. And I was like, whoa, like old boy actually did what he was saying going to do, right? And for me, that was a moment when somebody had said they were going to do something. They actually came through and they delivered on that. They did that. They kept their promise. And it was an encouragement to me. It was a good thing to me. And I don't, I don't know about you, but a lot of us go through life with people telling us they're going to do things and they never, ever do those things. But isn't it awesome when we go through life and we have times when somebody says to you, hey, I'll help you with that, or I'll show up with that, or I'll do this, or I'll give that, and they actually come through and do it. It's great. It's encouraging when people keep their promises to us in our lives. And so as we think about that, that's kind of where we ended last week as we're walking through our Old Testament series, what we're doing for the next months is we've opened up the book of Genesis and we're going to go all the way through the Old Testament uh, and, and hit the big themes and the big stories and what do we see. And, and last week we kind of landed seeing this truth about God, that God was a God who kept his promises, right? God was a God who kept his promises. We saw that as we walked through this timeline And we saw all these different events, and we kind of summarized this last week. And if you're interested, you can go back to the first 10 or so minutes of last week's sermon. But what we ended in this place where there were these people in Israel, right? We ended where there was this this group of people, this nation forming, this ethnic people group that was starting to develop. And we said, that's really significant because way back over here, many years earlier, God had promised to a dude who didn't have any kids He said, man, I'm going to give you not just some kids, but I'm going to give you so many kids, so many descendants that they're going to become a people group. And what we saw as we've tracked the story that that promise made to a person who didn't have any kids at the time later down the road eventually comes true. And now we see these people. We see that God has kept his promise. And in the coming weeks, what we're going to study is this next promise is going to be fulfilled about the land. But but the question is this, we saw last week that God kept his promise. We saw that he now gave people. But the question is, well, what are those people experiencing? What's going on in the story of those people? What are they facing? And, And just as importantly, what can we learn in our story? And what can we learn from their story, not just about what they faced and not just about what we faced, but what can we learn about God? And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to press into studying these people and thinking about what they're experiencing and thinking about what do we learn from that about God? Because here's why that's really important. If we leave our study in the Old Testament and we kind of walk away with like five ways not to parent like Jacob or 27 ways to be a leader like David, that's wisdom, that's practical, that's helpful. But if all that's if that's all that we walk away from, then you know what? We're missing it. Because if we miss an opportunity to learn not just how to be a better parent, but if we miss the opportunity to learn about God, then we're missing something. And so today we're going to think about what do we see about God in their story and in our story. And to understand that, we need to understand, well, what's going on in these people's lives. So here's what we see these people experiencing. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. This is kind of 
where we left last week, but we pick up there. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Just look at what's being described about what these people are getting. They're fruitful. They increase greatly. They multiplied. They're exceedingly strong. What we see in this moment is that God has kept his promise to give people. But to these people, God's blessing them. God's doing good things. God's making them fruitful. God's helping them benefit. God's helping them grow. There's all these blessings of God that his people are starting to experience. And the question is this. Okay, well, is that the end of their story or what happens next? Well, what becomes real to them very soon flows out of what we read in verse 9, where it says this, right? Verse 8, rather. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and they're too mighty for us. Now, we have to kind of pause here and think about this. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph that's kind of hard to understand because Joseph and the Pharaoh that he worked for, man, they were like rock stars. They would have been cemented into Egyptian history. There is no president after John F. Kennedy who's become president that doesn't know who John F. Kennedy is, right? He might've had different policies than JFK. He might've loved JFK. He might've not liked JFK, but every president after JFK at least knows about JFK. It's really hard to believe that a king who arose would have known about what Joseph did because Joseph and that administration of that prior Pharaoh, man, kind of saved the day. And so to try to understand what's going on here, we need to understand a little bit about Egyptian history. Yes! Aren't you excited? You woke up this morning coming to church. You've done your hieroglyphics on the way in and you thought to yourself, if I can just go to Calvary today and learn about Egyptian history, my life will be complete. Well, we're about to learn Egyptian history and you're going to thank me one day because you'll be on Jeopardy or you'll be at your favorite restaurant with your buddies for trivia night or you'll be at men's night for trivia night. And they will ask you a question about the Egyptian pharaohs. And you will say to yourself, self, I'm so glad that weirdo Peter taught me a little bit about Egyptian history. Here's what you need to know about Egyptian history. There was a a period in Egypt's history where it was the, the people who ruled Egypt were of the class of pharaohs, the kings, the rulers, the pharaohs, who were known as Hyskos pharaohs. Not high school musical pharaohs, but high school pharaohs, okay? And Egypt has been around for like 3,000 years at this time. And over time, there were these non-Egyptian people who had come into Egypt. And over time, those non-Egyptian people had married some. They, they weren't fully full-blood Egyptian, but they'd moved to power. And so this group of rulers, this group of pharaohs that were not 100% pure-blooded Egyptian who had other ethnicities in them were known as the Hyskos pharaohs, the Hyskos pharaohs, right? And what happens after them, this is Egyptian history 101, there then became this kind of nationalistic movement in Egypt where the Egyptians and the power brokers were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. we don't want these not full-blooded Egyptians over us. We want to be ruled by full Egyptians, right? We want this to be about Egypt. We don't like those. And so there was this little power struggle where the full-blooded Egyptians kind of threw out of power this Hyskos pharaoh. 
and Heiskos pharaohs. And actually there was this kind of nationalism where Egyptians were all the Egyptians and anybody that wasn't fully Egyptian, there was this tension and this animosity. And here's what most scholars think. In our time together, dating all of this is really, really hard. So I'm kind of using a, what a conservative evangelical dating of these events has been for, for many, many years. Is it the right dates? I could probably, but could it be the wrong ones? It could be. But if you do all that, here's what most scholars think. Most scholars think that Joseph was in the administration of a Heiskos pharaoh. Joseph was part of the administration of a non-full-blooded Egyptian pharaoh. This dude came after that. This dude was the full-blooded Egyptian pharaoh, and he came to power, and he said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Man, I, I don't like those not full-blooded Egyptian people. I don't like those non-full-blooded Egyptian pharaohs. And so when it talks about not knowing Joseph, it probably doesn't actually mean he doesn't know who he is, but it's saying, you know what? Man, I'm going to pretend that dude didn't even exist. I don't want to do anything to validate what the not full-blooded Egyptian people did. I don't want to do anything to give them credibility. So, man, we're just going to cruise around like old boy didn't even exist. And so, what we find happening, a new pharaoh comes to town. The Israelites who were being blessed, who were well taken into the society for a little bit, are now living in a culture where the government and many of the people don't really want them there. And so, what is this new pharaoh who has this animosity towards not people who are full-blooded Egyptian? That's just history. Well, what does that new Pharaoh do? What does he say? Well, he says this in verse 10, right? People of Israel are too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and they escape from the land. Now, you can read that and you're like, well, dude, well, I mean, that doesn't seem like you don't want them to join our enemies, but if you don't want these people in your land, right? If they're a threat to you and they escape, why is that bad? Well, let me tell you something else in addition to my kitchen. Let me tell you about when I, Fairfield County dude, left high school and I went down to school in Greenville, South Carolina at Furman University. I learned all sorts of phrases. Well, I'd learned all sorts of phrases, but I learned all sorts of Southern phrases I'd never heard before. My roommate was from Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, Atlanta. He's one of these Southern dudes who didn't go by his first name. He had the initial T. Heart law. Okay, Southern dude. I remember one time, our first couple of days there, it's time to, you know, we're in our roommates together, time to go to bed. And he's like, hey, Peter. I hope he doesn't listen to this sermon because this is the worst impression of him. But he's turned over and said like, hey, Peter, why don't you cut off the light? I'm like, huh? I'm like, bro, I cut my grass. Like, I cut my hair. You want me to take scissors? And cut? He's like, no, nah, just cut the light off. I'm like, you want me to turn the light off? Or here's another one. You'd be watching TV, and one of these southern dudes would say to me, hey, man, why don't you take the remote and mash that button? Mash the button? I mashed potatoes, right? That meant press the button, and here's the deal. Those were idioms. Those were phrases in that culture. This is an idiom. Escape from the land does not mean like escape from Alcatraz. This phrase in the Hebrew is used three other times in the Bible. And every time that it's used in the Bible, right, what does it actually mean? It means this idea of overcoming, overwhelming, dominating. What this dude's saying is, look, look, man, I, I'm in control now. And there's this people group who are a threat to me. 
And we need to figure this out because if we don't be careful, everything we hold dear, they're going to threaten and they're going to dominate us and overtake us. It's interesting how threads and stories and threads in life and threads and things that different cultures face, there might be centuries apart, but the questions and the problems and the issues don't change. I mean, how does a country deal with people who are in their country and the hurt that comes from that and the hate that comes from that and the processing all through that? And so he says, okay, I got to deal, I got to figure out what to do here. And so what happens? Well, this is what he does because of fear of them coming over, taking over. Verse 11, therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. So, so here's what's going on, right? By now, this is about 1845 B.C. The Jewish people, the Israelite people, excuse me, who had land, who had homes, probably had those taken away. The people who had businesses were now working forced labor for somebody else. They were slaves. And the pyramids were in existence. And the big sphinx was in existence. And in the background of those postcard shots, the Israelite people weren't going to their own houses and their own places. They were slaves. And they were being oppressed. And they were being persecuted. And it didn't seem fair. And it was a shift in their story almost overnight. But while they were facing that persecution, while they were facing that hardship, while they were facing that unfair treatment and that slavery, something else very interesting was happening. And we see that in the very next verse. And here's what we see happening, right? But the more they were oppressed. So on one hand, they're being oppressed. They're being taken advantage of. The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad, persecuted, unfairly treated on one hand. But on the other hand, Man, God's still blessing them. God's still working in their story. God's still causing them to be fruitful. And we're going to see that same tension later on in the story because later on in the story, Pharaoh's going to up the ante and he's going to say, okay, the way that I need to deal with these people is by killing them, by genocide. And in that moment of the story, when there's this order out to kill babies, right? Persecution is really ramping up now. Unfair treatment really ramping up now. On one hand, we see this other reality in the next hand about what we see in that part of the story in this next verse where it says this, and you can pop it. So God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong under the threat of death. And the persecution and the hardships on one hand. On the other hand, God is still working to bless them, to protect them, to cause them to multiply. And what we see from this is this this, this tension, these two things on two different hands. What it reveals in their story and our story is this, that God is actively blessing us. God is actively blessing us. But at the very same time, in the other hand, life in a fallen world is constantly impacting us. God is constantly actively blessing us. But life in a fallen world is constantly impacting us. Both of these truths are true and both are true at the same time. 
the existence of this truth that God blesses us does not negate the fact that this is also true. And the fact that this is true, that life in a fallen world is constantly impacting us, does not negate the fact that God is actively blessing us. We hold these two competing truths in two hands at the same time, and we're stuck navigating our lives in the middle between the two. What does that mean for you and for I this morning? This is what it means that for you this morning, if you're a Christian, even if you're not a Christian through his common grace, this morning, God is actively blessing you. He is. This morning, God is showing his grace to you. This morning, God has shown mercy to you. This morning, he has shown steadfast love to you. He hasn't let you drop out of his hand. He cares for you. You're taking a breath. You have the gift of this day. And at the same time, all of us this morning are in some way being impacted by life in a fallen world. And this morning, some of us are being impacted by that in a really, really hard way. And some of you this morning are walking through trials and you're walking through moments and you're walking through things that are really, really hard on one hand. And at the same time, on the other hand, you're experiencing the blessings of God. We will never, ever, ever not be in a place where we're not receiving God's steadfast love. You will never be in a place in your story where you're not going to receive God's steadfast love. And at the same time, we can never escape the impact of sin due to a fallen world until Jesus comes back. We, we can never escape God's steadfast love. And at the very same time, we can never escape the impact of sin in our lives and in our stories in a fallen world until Jesus comes back again. And we walk between those two realities. We live today as the people of God between those two tensions, knowing we will never escape, never be out of God's steadfast love. And at the same time, never escape the impact of life in a fallen world in our story until Jesus comes back and makes it right. And I don't know about you, <clears throat> but man, I, I look forward to Jesus coming back and making it right. I do. I, I look forward. I love my kitchen. Cook there all the time. Man, it doesn't fix the problems in the world. I love, don't tell my wife, not more than her, but more than my kitchen. I love my 2001 Toyota 4Runner. But it doesn't stop all the pain in the world. There will come a day when Jesus will come back and make everything right. But until that day, we live knowing we can never escape his steadfast love, but we can never escape the impact of sin in a fallen world. But I can't wait for the day that Jesus comes back and makes it right. I can't wait for the day when there's no more cancer. I can't wait 
for the day when there's no more marriages fractured. I can't wait for the day when no more unborn children are killed. I can't wait for the day when there's no more memorial services. I can't wait for the day when division in local churches among Christians over things that we should never be divided about stops. I can't wait for the day for all people to experience God's love and care and justice, no matter what their background or what their story. I can't wait for that day. There was somebody who wrote a song, and last week I probably broke a Christian urban legend by telling you I know that the verse, if my people who pray for my name, well, has nothing to do with America, okay? This week, another urban legend. I've already broken it. I'm going to break it with a song that has nothing to do with Christmas, but we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World. That song is about looking forward to the day when Jesus comes back and makes it right, and here's what it says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Looking forward, it says this, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. One day, someday, all of us will fully experience those words and that reality. And I can't wait for that day. But until that day, we walk this tension between the fact that God is actively blessing us and steadfast loves us, and yet life in a fallen world is constantly impacting us. There's something else that this Reality shows the very fact that the more Pharaoh tried to oppress him, the more God blessed him. You know what it reveals? It reveals this, right? What it reveals is that this was not ultimately a battle between Pharaoh and the Israelites. He'd oppress them. He'd enslave them. They would flourish because God would bless. What that shows is this. It wasn't ultimately a battle between Pharaoh and the Israelites. But you know what? This was a contest between Pharaoh and God. And you know what? I flipped ahead a few pages. And I know who's going to win that challenge. God is. It's not ultimately about Pharaoh and the Israelites. It's about Pharaoh and God. And God is going to win. Which will show us and which shows us now this. That the source of our oppression does not ultimately hold the power. God does. The more Pharaoh tried to oppress, the more he tried to make it harder, the more he came up with plan A and B and C, man, the more that he exerted oppression, man, God was actively blessing. God was still in control. The source of our oppression does not ultimately hold the power, but as Christians, God does. Another famous song captures that truth. Not quite as sacred as joy to the world, but honestly, Just as meaningfully, I've shared this amazing literary treasure with you before in the past, but it's worth sharing again. It's a song sung by some vegetables. In the great children's classic, Veggie Tales. And instead of phrasing it this way, this is what it phrases. It says, you know what? God is bigger than the boogeyman. Here's some lyrics. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. 
Oh, God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. And he is. He is. And so you know what this means? This means this, that the person who lied about you, they don't have the power over you. God does. This means that the boss who unfairly fired you, they don't have the power over you. But God does. This means that whatever it is that is just causing you so much worry and anxiety and keeping you up late and waking you up early, ultimately that isn't in control of your story. Ultimately, God is because God is bigger than the boogeyman and God is bigger than Pharaoh and God is bigger than whatever it is that is causing you stress and oppression today. That means many of our past sins and failures <clears throat> that are part of our story that we wonder, does it define our story? It doesn't. Your past, pre-Christ, man, that a past doesn't have power over you. God does. God does. The source of our oppression does not ultimately hold the power, but God does. Now, they were still facing depression. And they were going to face it for a while, and things are tough. The Sphinx and the pyramids are in their background, and these guys are going to build these things as slaves, and things have ended. And, and that's going to last for 400 years. And the question is, is there anything that gives us any clarity about that? Okay, not necessarily explains it all, but is there anything that gives us clarity? And there is. And I like this part of the, I mean, the, the sermon's good, but this part excited me. I am 49 years old. I have been a church kid since I grew up. If there is a flannel graph, I've seen it. See, that shows you how churchy I am because some of y'all don't even know what a flannel graph is, right? If there is a church basement where red juice was served to you in a cup before there were allergies, I've been there, okay? I've, I know the stories. I know that I, I, there's this next piece of it for 49 years I've never seen. And this, you know, this past week as I was looking at how another pastor and some writers and commentators were talking about this, I'm like, whoa. Because there's another part that puts some clarity on why this happened. And it puts some of it in a broader context. And it comes from what God told to Abraham many, 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 many years before the Jewish person was first put in slavery. Israelite person. Okay. You remember a few sermons ago I talked about how they did contracts. We talked about that interesting verse where God makes his contract with Abraham and they slice some animals in part and Abraham walks through the middle of it and that was like signing the papers with a notary. Well, in that conversation, God looked ahead to the slavery of the Jewish people and, 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 and put some context around it. And this is what he said to Abraham many years earlier before it happens. The Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring, old boy didn't even have offspring yet, but when you do, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And there will be servants, i.e. slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's what happens. It's about 400 years that the Israelite people are in slavery. Then God continues and says this next 
peace to them. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. He will, Egypt, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age. Here's what God's saying. Abraham, you don't have any kids yet. One day you're going to have kids. They're going to be a people. They're going to end up in a country that there is not their country. For 400 years, they're going to be slaves in that country. But one day, Abraham, I'm going to bring them back to this very land, right? This land of Israel. And I'm going to give them the land and it's going to be great. And the question that's kind of out there is, well, God, why can't like, can't they just get the easy pass and zip right here? Like, can't they get one of those high speed bullet trains and just like, what's this 400 years for? God doesn't tell why necessarily, but he adds this context. And I love this. And here's what he says next. They shall come back here in the fourth generation before, because here's why. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete complete. In the land of Israel, when God was saying this to Abraham, eventually there's going to be this people group called the Amorites, and they were going to be sin, and they were going to be idol worshipers, and they were going to be against God, and God wanted all people group to turn to him, but the people groups that didn't, there was going to have to be punishment, and here's what God is saying. God's saying, hey, Abraham, those Amorites, there's a lot of sin right now, and it's bad, But it's not bad enough yet. But in 400 years, it's going to be so bad that then I'm going to have your descendants come back and they're going to take care of it and they're going to start to make things the way it should be. Here's what this is saying. Have you ever seen the inside of a clock? An expensive clock, not your Apple Watch. Like some little kids try to like undo their parents' Apple Watch right now, right? Inside of a clock, there's all these different sized gears. And all these different sized gears connect together and interlocking and they all help each other turn. And this is what we see about God, that at the very same moment, God is working so many stories together like gears behind a clock to accomplish his purposes. God, the Israelite people are enslaved and God is working in their story and that's their story and he's drawing them to himself. At the same time through that, he's working in Pharaoh to try to bring Pharaoh to repentance to try to judge Pharaoh. At the same time in that, he's working in Moses' story to develop Moses as a leader, as a follower of him. At the same time as that, there's these people over here called the Amorites that he's dealing with and God is doing that all at the same time. And the story of the Amorites 400 years down the road is connected to the story of the Israelites, which is connected to the story of Moses, which is connected to the story of Pharaoh and their gears in a clock that are all connecting and moving and causing God's plan to bring and come about over a 400-year period. Now, the slave in Israel, in Egypt, Man, they're never going to see what God does with the Amorites. They're never going to see how that's fulfilled. But you know what? Their story's part of that story. And here's what we see from that. God sees and controls all the pieces. God, at the same time, is juggling all of that. All of it. 
And he already knows what happens in this moment is going to impact that moment. And what happens in that moment is going to depend upon this moment. And this person is going to be here and do that. But that part of the story is going to hit this part of the story. That's going to hit that part of the story. And he's doing it all at once. And somehow in his sovereignty, it's all connected. Because God sovereignly sees and controls all of the pieces. Okay, that's great. Who cares about the Amorites? What does that have to do with you? Here's what it has to do with you and me. You have no idea how what you're facing now is a gear in the amazing redemptive clock that God has put together and how God's going to use that in the future in some way. You have no idea how the questions you're asking now or the unknowns you're navigating now, you have no idea what that is going to turn and what that is going to impact five years down the road. There's something five years down the road that God has planned and whatever you and I are facing now, it is connected to that. And we don't know what it is. We have no, you have no idea. The Israelites, Moses, had no idea what God was going to do in their story to impact future generations. You know what? You have no idea how that piece of your story today could be used by God to impact the lives of people who aren't even yet born. We have no idea. But somehow God does. And God sovereignly sees all the pieces and controls all the pieces. I have no idea how all the things I scribble in my journal are somehow going to all fit together in five years. I may never know. I may never know. But God does. And it does all fit together in his larger plan of redemption and impact. And you and I can get stuck because of all the unanswered questions. You and I can get angry at not knowing the plan or not like navigating the plan. That's not really going to change anything. Or we can just get to a place where we say, you know what, God? Will you give me the strength to trust your plan? Will you give me the strength to trust this moment that you see it and that you're controlling it? And that you're building it together for another moment. God sovereignly sees and controls all the pieces. And as he's doing that, things are going to get worse for the Israelites. You know why? Because we have the tension of God blessing us and the fallen world. And they're going to experience that. It's last section that we end with is going to tell us how it's going to get worse for the Israelites. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh, right, this, this pure Egyptian Pharaoh, who he's going to try to get rid of the boy babies because he's afraid of future warriors to come. And if you've been around for Christmas and you know the Christmas story, and if you're not a church person, it kind of sounds familiar to a plan that comes later on down the road. And this is not the point of this story, but it's, it's worth noting. You know what's driving Pharaoh? Fear. Fear. A threat to his power, a threat to his control. 
and fear is causing him to horribly mistreat innocent people and try to kill kids. Fear, such a driving factor in what causes us and how it causes us to act towards other people. Well, his, this is his plan, right? But the midwives, verse 17, feared God, and they did, do, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes. I don't know what that means. I'm not even going to try to exegete it. I'm just moving on, all right? So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and the people multiplied and grew very strong. But then there's another plan. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh, Pharaoh commanded all his people. Pharaoh's like, okay, I can't get the Israelites to take care of their own people. So now it's up to the Egyptians. The Egyptians, you need to rally around me. We need to get rid of all these Israelite people who are creeping into our area and who are a threat. And you need to help me kill them. Because they pose a threat to us. And we need to get rid of them. And I need you to help me. This plan. And so he says, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There are pregnant women and the dads of those babies who are going to bed at night in this part of the story who aren't excited about the birth, who are scared about the birth who are afraid every time they go to bed and every day that gets close to the delivery date, they're thinking to themselves, dear God, if this is a boy, an Egyptian soldier or my Egyptian neighbor might take him and drown him in the river. That's heavy. And every night, these people are going to bed with that fear and that concern. And just when it seems the story can't get any worse for these people, you know what God does? God's going to raise up a deliverer. God's going to raise up someone to rescue them. God's going to raise up somebody to protect them. God's going to raise up somebody to get them out of the slavery that they can't get out of themselves. Because that's what God does. Because when there's things that trap us, and there's things that hold bondage over us that we can't escape from ourselves. You know what God does for us? God delivers us. And as we're a couple of weeks away from Easter, the biggest example of that is sin. Is sin. That all of us <clears throat> were bondaged, oppressed by sin because what we did is what Adam and Eve did. And what we've done is said to ourselves, God... Following you, doing it your way, nope, I'm not interested because I want more. I want something that you're not letting me get. And so I'm going to get that by myself. And in that moment, we disobey God. And when we disobey God, we've sinned against him. And a just God has to punish sin. And you know what's the problem with sin is? It traps us. It puts us in bondage. It enslaves us. And we can't free ourselves. And at the moment when we think there's nothing we can do for ourselves to bring rescue, you know what God does? God raises up a deliverer for you and for us in Jesus. 
Jesus who came and said to you and to me, I don't want you to be trapped any longer. And who in love said to you and me, and I don't want you to ever, ever face one ounce of the Father's wrath. And so I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver you, but I'm going to swap something with you. I'm going to trade you. Here's the trade Jesus makes. Give me your sin, and I'm willing to be punished for it instead of you. And in exchange for that, I'm willing to give forgiveness to you, to deliver you, and to rescue you, and to free you. And that's what the next two weeks of Easter is going to be about. But here's the deal. If, if, if you just thought Jesus was some cartoon character that doesn't really have any impact, if you just thought that trying to go to heaven means you'd be nice, I don't want you to miss the story. It's about sin that traps us and the substitute who came to deliver us. Because when we find ourselves in the moment when we can't rescue ourselves and just at the point where we think things can't get any worse, God raises up a deliverer. Love to talk to you more about that. If you have any questions, I'll be outside. Next week, we're going to start tracking. As I invite the worship team up, we're going to start tracking through this, this ongoing story. And it's going to be an amazing parallel as we enter the Easter season with the rescue of the people. And we're going to think about Jesus and we're going to think about the plagues. And I'm so grateful that you've been with us on this journey so far. And I'd love to invite you to come back and to keep being part of this journey as we walk through our series on narrative. Let me pray. Father, I pray specifically, Father, for someone today who knows exactly what it means to live in a fallen world and to feel the impact of that. For the people in this room, Father, who are just uh, facing some really challenging times, that as they navigate that, that the truth, the fact that you are with them and that you actively bless them will also be real that you might remind them of your steadfast love, Father, that you will give them supernatural peace that they will feel. For people, Father, for us this morning who are trying to figure out what in the world are you going to do with what we're facing now? How are you going to use what we're going through in our story and we're praying to you and we're asking you and we're journaling, Father, I pray that you will allow those of us who are asking those questions, Father, to just continue to wait and to see what you're doing, and to simply trust you, even when we don't have all the explanations. And Father, for any person who's listening to this today, who when we started talking about trapped by sin, it, was, it landed hard on them. Will your Holy Spirit please pierce the darkness of their hearts and draw them to the amazing grace and hope and truth that's found in Jesus. Thank you, Father. We're grateful. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.